Fenella Kernerbone joining you today here on By Design in what is the final By Design for 2014. Today, four guests join me to consider the fashion trends, the design trends, the architecture trends in 2014. Today we're looking at 2014 in architecture and design, the trends that emerged this year or kind of started to gain traction throughout 2014, the ideas that made an impact in architecture, design, innovation, fashion, you name it. And I am very pleased to be joined by Fleur Watson, who's the curator of Melbourne's Design Hub at RMIT. Welcome, Fleur. Hi, Fenella. Thanks for having me. Paddy Huntington joins me too, a blogger, fashion writer, general excellent person. Welcome to you too, Paddy. Hi there, Fenella. Jess Scully, who is the creative director of Vivid Sydney, amongst other things. Hello, Jess. Hi, Fenella. And also someone who is often here on this program on By Design. Her name is Jan Ryan. She produces this show. She's also the founding executive director at TEDx Sydney. Welcome, Jan. Oh, Fenella, thank you. Such a pleasure to meet you oh, in the studio. It's wonderful to be on this side of the glass. <laughs> a, rare, a rare occasion. So today we're talking about some of the trends as we wrap up our final show for 2014 before we kick into the summer series. So uh, before we get into the nitty gritty, I thought I might get each of you to give me your top let's say, two trends, headlines to start, and then we'll get into the details. So, Fleur, let's start with you, your top two trends. Mine is Educational Institute as Architecture Commissioner. I think we're really seeing a, a prolific uh, amount of buildings under that realm. And then secondly, I'd say fictional design practice, which is a very exciting okay. new realm. Does it actually exist? Mm, does it mm. exist or is it about the ideas or maybe that whether it exists is not important? Okay, we'll get into that in a moment. Paddy, your top two? Uh, I'd probably start with crowdfunding, which is, uh, I mean, revolutionising many industries, but particularly in fashion. There's a number of, I mean, of course, a brand can go on Indiegogo or Kickstarter or, or Possible and gauge an idea of, you know, consumer interest. And it's really starting to um, build some momentum, particularly in the denim area where people are sort of starting to go direct to consumers. And the second one I would say would be wearables because this was the year of wearables and tech has been the biggest story in fashion this year. Okay, so we've got crowdfunding and wearables from Paddy Huntington. Jan Ryan. Well, firstly, it's very hard to have a trend in architecture because it's such a slow beast. Mm. It takes forever. But I think the things that are making traction are things that are smaller and higher and smarter. And I'd also want to bring on the table as an idea that landscape architecture is no longer outside, it's inside. And the idea of indoor-outdoor, which is a concept that's been around in Australia for 50, 60 years, is now really seriously happening. There's really perhaps not even a door. Okay, so it's much more blurred. It is together as such. And Jess Scully, our final guest today, your top... I don't know, two trends? 2014 was actually the year where mobile browsing surpassed desktop browsing and web design had to respond to that major trend. And then I think my second trend is actually a company and it's the billion-dollar design business that is Nest Labs. So this way back in January 2014, Nest Labs were acquired by Google for $3.2 billion. And so far what they have produced is a smoke detector and a thermostat but it's all about adding the value through design and the connected smart home and the role of design in that. Okay, so these are the top two trends from each of our guests today. Paddy, I might just begin with you because I know that there is a bit of a connection between your ideas and what Jess Scully has to say as well. So we, we talked about crowd 
funding, I suppose, as being a one big thing. But can we actually start off with another one, which is what you mentioned as well, which is wearables as a big trend in 2014. The things that we wear, the tech that we wear, and what it looks like and how it manifests itself. Yeah, well, it's been sort of, you know, a long time coming, I suppose. In the, uh, I mean, in the health area, there are sort of medical home alerts. And in the fitness area, obviously, we've had things like heart rate monitors, which have gained enormous sort of popularity. And look, smartwatches really have come to the fore, I mean, you know, for the past sort of 18 months to, to, to two years. And I think tech and fashion have really fused this year. I mean, there's a lot of fashion people going into the tech business. I mean, witness the exodus of fashion and luxury executives going being hired by Apple in the lead up to the, to the Apple Watch launch next year. And this is where fashion is taking over because, I mean, how do you get consumers to adopt something. I mean, it has to look good. So the, the idea, of course, is it's great to have the idea, but you have to make it something that you want to wear. So we got better at it this year. Jess Scully. We absolutely did. I think the first horses out of the gate were probably Google Glass. <laughs> and then very quickly, people began to resent the glass holes that were walking around with these very obtrusive devices uh, sitting there right on their faces. And they said that you had money and that you were part of that world and it sort of put you apart from everybody else a symbol of elitism, but also didn't work very well as a design object. So I think what we're seeing now is more thoughtfulness from designers as how they're actually making these objects more unobtrusive, silent, screenless where possible, and adding value to our lives without interfering in daily life. So we had a great um, speaker here for Vivid Ideas this year, a guy called Gardy Amit from uh, New Deal Design in San Francisco. He is the designer of the Fitbit and he was really conscious that he didn't want to put a screen on the Fitbit because he doesn't want to interrupt our flow of everyday life. And he wants these things, these appliances to really work in the background. So I, I think there's still a lot of work for designers to do to make these objects beautiful and wearable and like jewellery that you'd want to wear every day. Are you a Fitbit user? Oh, heavens no. <laughs> um, we might get through to a few other fashion trends. Uh, well, we've got Patty here as well, then we'll move on to our other guests and their trends for 2014. So, Patty, um, you mentioned crowdfunding, something that's very important, and that's been kind of growing over the last few years, but why this year for you? Well, it's, it seems to have really taken off sort of en masse, and particularly in the fashion area and in, in the denim area for some reason. And it's just produced this avalanche of, of brands. I mean, I did a post where I called it Denim Disrupted because that's exactly <laughs> what it is. And I nearly wore double denim today, Patty. I'm so glad I didn't. Oh, you could have been Normcore as yeah. well. So at the same <laughs> we'll time, get to that. another big trend. And look, there's been some very amusing things too, like the guy from Marrickville, Ben Rogers, who saw a brightly coloured floral men's suit in the window of Lowe's and, and didn't have the $250 to buy it, <laughs> went on to Kickstarter to crowdfund it and got it for $257. And then two university graduates... Did you fund that, Jess? Are you not, you're not <laughs> in You there. contributed to you. It's still in Lowe's. I've noticed it. And the whole point, of course, is that it's, it's showcasing the things that we want. We get to have uh, a bit of agency in this, which kind of makes me lead to, Fleur, one of your ideas for 2014 is, is the notion of mass customization that we can create the things that we want ourselves and perhaps the costs won't necessarily rise up, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really across the design spectrum, this idea of a maturing in the use of digital technology. So there's no longer necessarily this real fetishisation of that idea. It's much more about this notion of sharing, about democracy in design, about the fact that you can customise within a kind of mass environment. The fact that some points of the design are open and some are closed, and that folds into the idea of co-design. So while a 
designer holds the knowledge and the expertise that through new technologies they can open parts of the design process to the public and to anyone who's just interested in engaging. You know, an example is a MakerBot, a digital 3D printer, is around about $2,000. So, you know, it really opens those doors of playing with this kind of technology. Design in all its spectrums has seen a real rise of this hacktivism culture. You know, you can hack into a design and Google Glass is a good example. We had something in the future is here where an industrial designer by the name of Scott Mason had hacked a small 3D printed part for a Google Glass that could then be used in remote locations for breastfeeding mothers. So the idea was that mothers who are having issues with breastfeeding could have real-time contact with a maternal child health nurse to, to help them. So I think you can see that new technologies are really able to make small but really significant changes in the way people use design. Jan, maybe moving on to, to architecture and some of the ideas that you've explored through your segments on, on by design this mm. year. And there are connections, I think, to what mm. um, Patty and, and also Fleur is saying in terms of sharing resources and, and crowdsourcing and collaborative work here. So this has been a big theme this year, it's hasn't huge, it? It's huge and it's probably been in nearly every single story that we've done and I've done in the field. One of the interesting things about Google Glass, just to bring that back on the table again, Google Glass, if nothing else, I think symbolises uh, a trend which is to lift up from the screens or up from your wrist or wherever and look out back into the world and into mm. people. And one of the things that I think is really significant about that and does connect with the architecture uh, big time is that we have had a lot of loneliness and aloneness in our culture that's been brought about by some shifts. And Google Glass, I think, symbolises a shift back to connection between mm. people, as tangential as that might seem. And I, you know, I feel that's really significant because it comes into the crowdfunding as well. There's crowdfunding around some architecture, not a lot, because architecture is much uh, more expensive and but so on. But it's more about, Jan, I think, that um, and the notion of sharing of resources. Though, that's actually that. really, really very key. It's exactly right. And so the communities now have to want to have these things. These things will be successful, not if they've been imposed upon them or us, be it a community of a street or a suburb or a town or a, or a house. They will have shared values. They will share things. You have to think about how you're going to fund these things. How are you going to turn an old suburban house into something that families can live in or you can make use of into the future that's not just like a bad renovation. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff that Fleur's talking about too is an experiment in how these things can be done mm. cheaply, effectively and then change the way we live within a house. So we lift so how, how the veil of loneliness. Okay, we so take things away that once uh, that are becoming barriers. Uh, Jess, what do you think? Is that is that kind of a, a key trend that you've noticed as well, this idea of lifting the veil of loneliness? That's quite a lovely sentence, actually, Jan, I must admit. <laughs> it, it's a lovely sentiment. I don't know. I'm, I'm on a different page to you, Jan. I, I don't think things like Google Glass are. I can see what you're getting at in that it's, mm. it's trying to return us to uh, eye contact, which is so essential. But I actually think things like Google Glass interrupt that. Um, and I think we need to look at the next generation of products and design that's actually going to remove that level of I agree, uh, that, totally. that layer. So, mm. But it's the beginning of that change. It's the beginning. I think one point that Jan and Fleur made as well that, that I find interesting is around co-design. And co-design has proven to be a really large trend in that it connects people who have ideas with those who have the technical expertise to deliver them. So there's a platform called Quirky, which is another one that's become a billion-dollar company over the past 
couple of years where really people submit the idea for the bendy electrical outlet board, for example, or the perfect chair or whatever it is. And then they work with product designers to actually deliver that product, take it to market, and it's got a built-in audience like many of the Kickstarter campaigns do. And some of the most innovative companies in the world are doing prototyping and um, iterative testing using the fans that they can find on message boards uh, and online. So for example, here's the new water bottle. What do you think of the, the spout? Okay, that didn't work. Here's the redesign. We'll send it out to everyone again. So, so it's in real time. It's constantly happening. Yeah, That's right. So it is co-design in that the community's getting involved with the initial concept, but then also refining the product. So by the time it goes to mass market, it's at its optimum state. Okay. On By Design, we're talking about some of the design trends for 2014, the things that we've noticed, the things that perhaps have fallen by the wayside as well. And my guests are Jess Scully, Paddy Huntington, Fleur Watson, and also Jan Ryan. And my name, of course, is Fenella Kernerbone, and you're on By Design here on RN. Um, and we're going through some of the design trends. Maybe we might just, uh, while you're talking, Jess, go to the, 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 the thing that you mentioned at the, the top, which was Nest Lab. What is this and why is it significant? The reason it's why it's significant from a design perspective is that you've got two guys here who worked in design at Apple and were involved in the design of the initial iPod, who then formed a company called Nest Labs, which was all about the connected home or the smart home. And we've been hearing for a long time about fridges that go on the internet and all of those sorts of things. These guys kept it really simple. And what they said was, we're going to look at appliances that are unloved, ugly and ignored. So the thermostat and the smoke alarm are their first ports of call. They took those items and they designed them so that there's very minimal interfaces, but they're beautiful objects and they are responsive in that they communicate with you. For example, if there's a, a rise in CO2 or, or carbon monoxide in your house, all of those sorts of things. Now, they have attached a premium price point to those products. They're $99 per smoke detector, which is a lot more than you'd normally pay because not just of the connectedness, but of the way that the user experience has been designed to be a kind of a holistic approach. And there was such value in that, that Google acquired them in January for you know over $3 billion because they see this as the beginning of colonising a whole new product category, which is appliances and adding a layer of not just technology, but really sensitive design to them as well. I feel like there's some really weird connection though to your other point, Patty Huntington, which is Normcore. So you're talking about really normal design, boring design that we all need. Uh, which of course is very important in terms of the the work that's uh, emerged from Nest Lab. But Patty's other thing, can I make this stretch as we move <laughs> along here on By Design? Oh, which why is, not? Yeah, <laughs> tell me about that one. Yeah, so Normcore sort of became this. It's an anti-fashion thing. It's anything that's sort of like non-fashion. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld is sort of the patron saints. Uh, so is the you know the late Steve Jobs and even Mark Zuckerberg, who was famous for wearing elastic waisted jeans, hoodies, and and shower sandals. You know, so <sighs> and, and look, la, la, on last year's <laughs> panel we talked about the ugly shoe trend. Well, it sort of stepped up a notch. This year with the shower slides and the yeah so it's 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 non-fashion stuff i mean it's also things like novelty christmas jumpers stuff that looks kitsch that's not the most fashionable so it's like are you happy to see some of these trends disappear well i'm not sure well yeah sure i mean i'm not sure where the norm core is going to disappear well this it's, it's almost a reaction against everything's become globalized i mean the, i think the original yeah. idea about norm core by as espoused by k-hole was an ideological trend and that, and that is that it was once possible to be special before sort of 
you know, the internet took over and before globalisation, it's not possible to be special anymore. So if you can't be special, let's be normal. Mm. You Normal's know? kind of tribal too, isn't it? What's normal in your tribe? And I think you see that uh, in design and in architecture in Australia. There's a, a real interest in going back to regions and not only regions, but sort of streets within Sydney or, you know, going deep into areas and a real interest in um, repositioning what's previously there, like old houses or, you know, funny old broken sets of pathways and falling down trees and things and rather than having a tree that's sort of beautifully clipped you know you let a limb fall and you, you know you, you let it sort of take its shape but it, its permission is allowed because the people in the street or in the house or whatever let this happen it's like you know you can wear your daggy jeans in a certain way in a certain street in a certain you know in a certain area in Sydney that it would be a little bit different in Brisbane. Mm. So there is that kind of tribalness, even within the normalness. On By Design, of course, we're talking about some of the trends of 2014. Fleur Watson is our guest, who's currently in Melbourne at present. And um, Fleur, one of your top picks, I suppose, for 2014 was education as architecture. How is this significant in 2014, particularly here in Australia? Well, I really wanted to pick up on what Jan said, because I think there's something really in this, this idea of design to meet and to exchange. And I think one of the ways that people of all ages and from everywhere do this is through exchanging ideas. So I think that's actually a really powerful thing at the moment. And I think educational institutes are really seeing this and trying to reframe educational buildings into very flexible meeting places. And a real desire that we're seeing to engage the wider community, to invite the public in to see these kind of ideas in action, both at an undergraduate but at a postgraduate level, and to really kind of explain those outwards, this kind of idea of creating a sense of community. So I think that's that's definitely present. And we can see that through the kind of commissioning of buildings such as Design Hub, where I work, but also in Melbourne's uh, new Melbourne School of Design, John Wardle, of course, with Nadea Tarani, who's a Boston-based architect. And even in the UTS Sydney Business School, I can... I think we can see a real expression into the city through, you know, looking at Sydney's brick heritage. Mm. And even though it's an international architect, the first Frank Geary building in Australia, there is this kind of exchange with mm. the city. And I think that broadens out too, perhaps to some of the re kind of engagement or the kind of patron pavilion that we're starting to see emerge. And of course, pavilions have a long history. They're not necessarily new. The Serpentine has been doing it for a long time, but well before that as well. But what we can see perhaps in something like the M Pavilion, which is, of course, the new Naomi Milgram Foundation initiative, is programming within the pavilion. So it being a, a kind of clubhouse, a meeting house, a place for exchange and very open to all. And of course, social media and the way people connect online and share crosses both education and these kind of more public expressions of architecture. So we're responding to the need for these smaller shared exchanges, these kind of tests. And, and then if we go back to the idea of crowdfunding and engaging the community at large, you need to explain those ideas out into the public. People need to feel an ownership of that work as well and to be part of it and to have it explained to them in a way that they can understand it. So I think universities are, are being quite, not all, but most are being quite quick to respond to those conditions. And what's really exciting, I think, is that we're seeing the physical or the architecture of those universities really respond to that as mm. well. The innovation starts there and then will spread out 
potentially to other architecture, other communities. Jan, your I, thoughts? I'm really interested in that, Fleur. I've really, uh, really been exploring the idea of how the concept of the room is starting to change. And we went through a big phase, uh, probably in the last 20 years particularly, but it started way back in the 40s and 50s or perhaps even earlier, of opening up the space. Open plan is the kind of word that we use. It could have been seen as an experiment in the way that our lives shifted. The architecture, well, probably quite quickly shifted when you consider how our culture shifted, uh, to take what was once defined as work by gender. So um, washing, women traditionally did the washing in the laundry space outside. Uh, they did the, the cooking in the kitchen. The men did men's things, you know, a, a, an office space or quiet rooms or reading rooms or whatever. And then we saw, saw that shift with open plan and everything being brought in, where we were all brought together in a way in a public meeting place in the house, similarly to what, you know, perhaps we're doing online now. And, and then our lives changed and the value of jobs changed. And now we're seeing, I think, a return to smaller spaces. But we can find more places to think, to have solitude, to deepen who we are in rooms and places like that. And it's really starting to show it's not the end of open plan. It's just recasting the way in which we value the space in our buildings. We can see that too in the type of housing. So even beyond the single family home, if you like, we can start to see the way that particularly young architects are really testing ideas about how people might live collectively in a community. So how they might have smaller houses, which are, are private spaces, but mm. then a shared community space mm. and also how different types of families or different or houses might be able to adapt to the changing need of a family. Yes, um, So things like dual key access, so the fact that you might be able to turn a single dwelling into two dwellings after the children grow up and leave the home. All those kind of ideas are, are how I think young architects and designers are making a real difference to the way people can live. So I think, you know, we really are seeing uh, our way of living slowly breaking apart the idea that we all have to live in the four-bedroom double garage house. Oh, definitely. And I think even the idea of a, of, a, of a dual key, I think the spaces are now not even keyed off. So we're going to see much uh, greater use or sharing of resources like kitchens, laundries, sunlight, uh, and without losing privacy, because this re requires us all to be different kinds of people. We need to approach each other different, differently. We need to have a, a different sense of what is silent, where the boundaries are between noise and privacy and things like that. So many big things, but they're certainly at play. Uh, but this in the is city. also where the tech is coming in. Definitely. And this is where yeah. what Jess was talking about earlier with what the, the creativity that Nest Lab and you know the thermostat, the smoke alarm, these ideas are building into this notion of, of, of a great exchange. And what Jan and Fleur have been talking about also extends to workplaces. Over the past two years, we've seen the rise of activity-based workspaces where everyone, you arrive and you pick your desk for the day. That hasn't worked for a lot of people. I think we're about to see a shift from activity-based workspaces to stand-up workspaces to movement-based workspaces. One of my favourite YouTube blogs uh, or videos is the jogging workspace. Someone with standing up with a treadmill. Do you think that's going to take off? I know someone who's built one. It's coming. <laughs> Time for us to wrap this up very soon, my friends here on By Design, as we talk about the 2014 trends in what is quite a rolling conversation. There's a couple of things that each of you haven't had a chance yet to mention. So, Fleur, if I could begin with you, you mentioned uh, one trend right at the top, which was about fictional design practice. So tell me what this is. 
fictional or speculative design is not necessarily new. We can think of um, Archigram and those kind of wonderful visionary views of the city. But there's a recent emergence of this, I think, in Melbourne. There's been an exhibition called The Future of Fashion is here. And there's two young designers, one's a curator and one, one is a fashion designer, Ricarda Bigelin and Nella Thamelius, who have this fictional design practice, Dolce & Cabane. <laughs> and so their whole work is really about challenging conventional notions of fashion practice. So their, their work is not cited within the tradition of the atelier, but it's cited within a fictional context, critiquing the mechanisations of, of making a brand. Um, we can also see it in the work of someone like Lucy McRae, who, who of course is a, is a body architect, is, is what she calls her work. Jen? Well, I think she's amazing and I love the way she draws us into different ways of experiencing through the senses. And I think that's an important point because one of the things that I think is a trend in architecture, if there can be such a thing, is to start thinking not so much about the way a building looks or a space looks, but the way in which it feels and the storytelling that goes on around that. So if you wanted to use the word narrative, and I think that's really significant. Okay. Jess, you're... Back to the internet. Yes. Uh, That big stat that this was the year where mobile browsing exceeded desktop browsing. It was also the year where 25% of emails were opened on a phone. It's all about what looks good across lots of different platforms. This is called responsive design um, and it's moving away from Flash, which used to dominate the internet and motion, to HTML5 and CSS3. So it's all about um, how there are new designs languages, paradigms, rules, which are all about making a website work anywhere for anyone. Perfect. And Patty? My last two were sort of interconnected athleisure, which is where sort of, you know, <laughs> clothes move, moves out of the, the gym and the yoga mat and, and the, onto the street. And look, you know, it's been happening for a long time. I mean, American streetwear and British streetwear was always sort of steeped in, in, in sort of sport brand tradition. And the other thing is crop tops, which of course is, you know, like sports bras and stuff. And crop tops have become not just sort of on the street, but they've made their way in a very big way into sort of day wear and even wear collections. So yeah, I mean, they, they continue to sort of rage. That's the one, athleisure and crop tops. I must say that my years of wearing crop tops have probably gone. So talking about the design trends, whether it's in architecture or in technology and innovation, in fashion, everything in between, my thanks to our guests today, Fleur Watson, Jan Ryan, Jess Scully and Paddy Huntington. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having you. And as always, you can find information and links to our guests on By Design's website. And that's the show for today. And in fact, for 2014, you can keep listening to us across the rest of the summer. But I'm bidding you farewell. By Design is not going to be on your radio next year. So my thanks and my greatest respects to Jan Ryan, my producer, our producer. She's tremendous and it's been wonderful working with her over the past three years. Also, my thanks to all our sound engineers, to our guests and panellists who have appeared on the program and to you who have been listening and giving us feedback and your thoughts as well over the past few years. It's been sensational. So that's it. My name's Fenella Kernerbone signing off for 2014. Do stay with us here on RN. Michael McKenzie is up next for RN First Bite. Bye-bye.